This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In almost every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which most episodes, except this one, I pick with some degree of randomness. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 57th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at Loki, Agent of Asgard, number three, and number four, and number five, from Marvel Comics, cover date of June, and July, and August, 2014. First, a little feedback. Over the last month or so, I've gotten to know Ruth and Darren Sutherland, the good folk who are in charge of the Trekker Talk podcast. That's not about Star Trek, mind you, but about the independent comic Trekker, featuring 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair. Well, we've learned that we have a lot in common, including an appreciation for Mike Grell, so I directed them to some of my episodes about Grell's work. And they replied to a few. I say they because they share email and Facebook accounts, so some of this may be Darren, some of this may be Ruth. It's kind of hard to tell. But here is what they said about the John Sable two-parter from way back in Episodes 3 and 8. First, Episode 3. It's always disappointing to see a Mike Grell comic illustrated by someone else. We were lucky to see Grell at DragonCon a couple years ago, at a panel where he talked about his career. He mentioned that he couldn't draw fast enough to tell all the stories he had in his head, so that was the reason he would sometimes stop drawing his titles. That is absolutely true. There are writers who can easily handle multiple issues in a month, but few, if any, artists can deliver that amount of high-quality work, so this is bound to happen but it is always a disappointment as well when it's something you really like, like a Mike Grell work. I thoroughly enjoyed the way your review progressed through the story. Your description of the publicity event with the red car was particularly funny. On the way on a business trip, I would have pulled my copy of the issue out to follow along with you, and that definitely worried me when the episode came to an end without covering the second part of the story. I was quickly calculating in my mind when I would be able to read the rest of the story, when thankfully I saw that you covered the second part in episode 8. Whew! A sense of relief. Thanks for a great episode. And then on episode 8, the end of that story, even though I'm still on my business trip and don't have access to my copies, I could still visualize every sequence from your descriptions. It made me a little sad that when you mentioned that most listeners won't have read these stories because of the lack of capes and cowls, The truth is, you're probably right. Comics offer so much more than capes and cows, and Mike Grell proved that repeatedly. In John Sable and Warlord, and even his Green Arrow was a more realistic, real-world type of superhero. I appreciate your comparison to the genre of cozy mysteries, which is my favorite type of book and television. They're Sherlock Holmes, Peter Whimsey by Dorothy Sayers, Hercule Poirot by Agatha Christie, and others I'm obviously forgetting. But those are my favorite books to read on weekend afternoons or when traveling. 
I'll write again soon with my thoughts on your review of Green Arrow 60. I've listened to that episode, but work beckons me, so I'll write about it later. Thanks again for another great episode. Well, thanks, Darren and or Ruth. I appreciate the comments and the support. I did get your email on the Green Arrow story, and I'm planning on including that next episode. So keep on listening, and keep on writing in. I also heard from Shag. The Irredeemable Shag. About last issue, where I covered issues one and two of Loki. And as you can imagine, Shag was fully supportive of this type of format change. You know, this constant gerrymandering of the Quarterman randomness rules is becoming outrageous. If I can't depend upon a college professor to follow the rules... Oh, shag, shag, shag. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. You also misunderstand the university process. We go into the professorhood... Well, the professorship... The, the professorness... Anyway, we go into this line of work because we can't follow rules. We sort of get to make up our own. Uh, Don't mention that to my dean, though, if that's cool. And then Shag goes on to discuss the books from last issue, Loki. Sort of. I mean, I think he tried. Also, your passion for villainous characters, Doom and now Loki, is worrying me. Emily is clearly the beacon of hope in the Middleton household. For myself, just to counterbalance your evil and rereading of Doom 2099, I've been rereading Spider-Man 2099. Hopefully my light will drown out the evil in your soul. We're all pulling for you, Professor Quarterbin. You know, I, I can't decide if Shag is purposefully misinterpreting the greatness of Doom, or maybe he's just not able, you know, capable... I guess, I don't know, bright enough to figure out the subtleties of those stories? He's from Florida, so any of those explanations could be the case. But yes, buddy, I am with you on one point. Emily is our only hope. I wanted to thank Ed Moore and Chris from Mythmaking ETC for sharing the Facebook link to that episode, and for Daniel Butcher of the comic book Time Machine for commenting on that post, even though he kept bringing up Aquaman, so that was weird. Anyway, I thank everyone for the feedback. Most everyone for the feedback. I mean, broadly speaking, I can honestly say that I appreciated most of it. I'm going to take a break here play a promo as the synopsis for these three issues is actually a full segment on its own. So when we come back, we'll talk about Loki, Agent of Asgard, numbers 3, 4, and 5. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again... This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. 
I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. And we're back. Loki, Agent of Asgard, issues 3, 4, and 5, each had cover prices of two ninety nine, meaning I acquired them at over a 91% discount, which, as I discussed last episode, is quite a shock. All three of these issues were written by Al Ewing, with art by Lee Garbett. I'm going to synopsize all the books here, and then go over the notes for all the books later. In terms of issue three, there was a variant cover, but I have the standard cover by Jenny Frisson, and it shows Loki on a gold throne in kind of a Bushema slouch with bigger horns on his head than last time. This is an older Loki, no longer John Travolta, and he seems to have the younger Loki trapped in a golden goblet. So, okay, that has me interested. The story titled, Your Life is a Story I've Already Written, starts in a cell in Asgard, as the older Loki watches the younger version's encounter with Verity Willis, covered last episode. Quickly bored, he looks for means of escape, and simply walks right off the page. As the newer, younger Loki's past is erased by fulfilling missions for the Allmother, the story of his life fluctuates, leaving massive gaps. It's these that the older Loki hopes to exploit to achieve his goals. The first place that old Loki visits is the distant past, once upon a time. When Odin was young, he evidently ran across his much older son. Just get used to that time stuff. Sweet-talking the young prince, the two walk along a river and find an otter. Odin finds the creature truly wondrous and Loki finds it tasty when cooked over a fire. The pair make it to an inn. As they drink, the innkeeper mentions that his third son, Oter, a shape-changer, went to get food and has not returned. Odin puts two and two together, or puts Oter and the Otter together. He tries to beat a hasty exit, but Oter's brothers arrive. Loki informs the men who Odin is, and one brother, Fafnir, considers holding him for ransom. The innkeeper commands Loki to fetch enough gold to cover Odor's skin by dawn, or Odin will be killed. Now, Loki knows where to fetch gold from, and Vari the dwarf guards his hoard in the shape of a giant pike, so strong and slippery that neither hook nor net nor magic could land him. So Loki pulls a bazooka out of his magic bag of holding. That is correct. I said bazooka, and simply blows the big fish away. With his dying breaths, Envari curses the gold to force anyone around it to tell the truth. Loki sidesteps the curse by not totally lying about where and how he got it. Mission accomplished, Loki and Odin leave, and as they do, Loki asks Odin to build a box to be locked with five keys imbued with whatever power he can find with a promise that Loki will return to tell him what to put in the box later. And another time, he did. The gold's curse leads one of the sons to kill his father. He flees with the gold. However, the brother 
promises vengeance on the other brother and on Asgard. And for this, he forges the mighty sword Graham. This is where Sigurd, the ever-glorious, enters the story, stopping also at the end. The brother talks Sigurd into pursuing the other brother, who has turned into a dragon by this point. He gives him Graham the mighty sword to aid him, and on the morrow, he did. Sigurd returns to the inn with the dragon's heart, and a magpie warns him to beware of the brother. Sigurd spins and strikes down his prospective murderer with the sword. The bird counsels Sigurd to eat the dragon's heart and to become a legend. Years later, King Bor of Asgard dies, and the magpie, who is in fact Loki, returns and tells Odin to place the sword left behind by Sigurd when he fled Asgard into the box. And with that, the old Loki returns to his own time. On the last page, we return to the present day. Sigurd makes his way to the mountain where his blade was placed and is annoyed to find it's been stolen by Loki. I'll just go steal it back. The cover for issue four was again by Jenny Frisson and shows Sigurd and young Loki back-to-back, each with a sword. Based on how issue three ends, this seems to show that this one actually follows on from the former. The story, Let's You and Him Fight, opens somewhere in Tibet, up a mountain. Kalu, master of black magic, is meditating in a state of perfect serenity. Until Sigurd arrives... Kalu mocks Sigurd's claim of being Asgard's greatest hero, despite his possession of Graham. Maybe you were hot stuff once, but that was a long time ago. But the mystic is curious about how Sigurd came by the sword. Some nights before, Sigurd cloaked himself in vanishing magic and climbed into Loki's Manhattan apartment, where he and Verity Willis are talking. Verity appreciates him cooking for her, but she wants to know if he has an ulterior motive for the invite. Then she asks, Hey, who's the invisible guy? Uh, hi, says Sigurd. I know this looks bad. Sigurd's attempt to flirt with Verity quickly fail. Skeevy McCreeper was a hero? Come on, who was the bad guy? Sigurd says there's no need for them to fight, as he just needs to borrow the sword for a while. Loki flashes to his most recent assignment from the All-Mother, which is to find Sigurd. They are not too happy about his inability to nab Lorelei in issue 2 covered last episode. So it's a case of Sigurd's freedom or Loki's. In the fight, Loki ends up kicked out a window. Fortunately, he's saved by the local washing line and his awesome seven-league boots. He provokes Sigurd into attacking him again, the two parry, until Sigurd cuts the clothesline, sending both Asgardians plummeting into a dumpster. We get a page of violent sound effects coming from inside the dumpster, ending with Sigurd slinking off down the alley. Man, I feel so unheroic. Back on the mountaintop, Kalu asks what Sigurd wants and the discussion turns to reincarnation. You see, Sigurd is destined for Valhalla, but he's concerned that lots of Valkyrie are going to be waiting for him, and he would prefer being reincarnated into something else. Using the sword's truth-bearing properties, the two sign 
an agreement in blood, at which point Kalu reveals his true identity. Your soul will be safe from the Valkyries, because it will burn for all eternity in the torture pits of Mephisto. Oh yes, he is totally stoked to have tricked an Asgardian hero. As Sigurd tries to attack Mephisto, he is restrained, and the carpet that they were sitting on turns out to be the contract, and Mephisto examines this, as clearly stated in paragraph 4, clause, um, wait, this is not my contract. Whoops. This is, in fact, Loki's contract. The trickster switched the carpets while Sigurd was explaining to himself, using multiple vanishings and invisibility magics to disguise himself. Mephisto is outraged on account of Loki using cheap misdirection to fool him. Mephisto whispers that he knows what's happening to the younger Loki, but Loki does not want to hear. Loki tells him to leave, and Mephisto merrily does. Sigurd is teleported straight into the All-Mother's throne room, still in chains. The three parts of the All-Mother are not unanimous that imprisoning Sigurd is a good move. Later, Loki confesses his guilt over Sigurd's imprisonment and announces his intention to go to Asgardia's dungeons and break the hero out. And for this mission, he has assembled a team. And on the last page, we see that his prospective agents, the one he's desperately trying to talk into joining him, are Verity, Lorelei, and Thor. The cover for issue 5 was also by Jenny Friesen. And yes, I do know that I'm pronouncing her name differently every time I say it. My theory is that that actually increases the odds that at least once I'll pronounce it correctly. The cover shows Loki in the center looking all smooth and in charge with Verity, Sigurd, Lorelai, and Thor surrounding him in you know, slightly smaller figures. Thor, by the way, is in a suit and tie and is wearing his helmet, and he does not look comfortable. The story, This Mission Will Self-Destruct in Five Seconds, starts on a Roxxon Airways flight over Broxton, Oklahoma, where the magical city of Asgardia exists. A man looks out his window and sees something that nobody else can, it's Loki and Lorelai preparing to jump off the wings. This is part of Loki's plan to get past Heimdall without being seen. Heimdall is obstacle one in the plan. Fortunately, at the speed Loki and Lorelai are falling, the Watchman just catches a glimpse of them, and he's distracted at the moment, for Thor is fighting the forces of the technocracy up in outer space. We flash back to the brothers planning this distraction, Thor is not so sure they should trust Lorelai. He also asks his brother why, if he disagrees with the All-Mother, he doesn't just confront them. If you believe they have good intentions, Thor, then I have a rainbow bridge to sell you. Loki reminds his brother of the possession he freed him from last episode in issue one. So pretty much, you owe me. With Heimdall distracted, Loki and Lorelai magic their way into the dungeons of Asgardia. Lorelai notes the total absence of guards, but Loki explains that the room they're in is full of incredibly deadly traps. This is Obstacle 2, the room of incredibly deadly traps. Fortunately, he has a plan. A cell phone 
with a magically boosted connection to Verity Willis, who can see through the illusions for them, even at a remote distance. That done, Loki and Lorelai reach the third obstacle, the impregnable Gate of Uru, which neither of them can open. So, Lorelai asks, how do we open the door? We don't. He does. On cue, Sigurd the Everglorious opens the door from the other side. Remember that dumpster fight I mentioned maybe six or seven minutes ago? Well, Loki just kicked the sides of the dumpster for a few seconds while explaining his plan to Sigurd, which included the hero getting captured and acting as Loki's agent inside Asgardia. Exasperated, Lorelai leaves. Job done, time to go home. Sigurd does the same, telling Loki to keep his sword warm. Loki figures that there's something really important in these cells, more important than just prisoners. Secrets. Peering through one cell door, all Loki can see is an odd map with a large X on it, which does intrigue him, but he figures the cell he's after has no door. He finds this hidden cell and opens it, and comes face to face with old Loki. I had my suspicions, young Loki says. That old Loki knows that's a lie. You just wanted to wash the blood off your hands and onto mine. Angered, young Loki stabs old Loki with Graham. The old man pretends it's killing him, but in truth it has no effect on him. Old Loki points out that it shows the truths one hides, and this Loki, old Loki, hides nothing. He's well aware that he's the villain, and he enjoys it. He then tells Loki he's responsible for Graham's creation, and that he is indeed Loki's future, what Loki will become, the fate he cannot avoid. At this point, the All-Mother arrive, and demand old Loki tell them the truth. He explains that in the future, Asgard will be ruled justly by King Thor, with Loki as the ever-recurring villain which sort of works for him. Loki asks how she can allow this future to happen, to allow Asgard to be rechained by destiny. Knowing the end of the story brought security. To have that back without the horror of Ragnarok, with a better tomorrow in its stead, we call that a miracle. Angered, Loki quits his service to the Allmother. As he departs, Old Loki announces that he will make sure that future Asgard will come into being. For I am Asgard's agent. Hi, I'm Nukchas, the host of Nutty Bites. And hi, I'm Tech, Nutty's regular guest. Or antagonist. Our podcast is like a call-in show where geeks get to debate topics about speculative fiction. We don't really debate. Sure we do. We debate topics such as lame superpowers, the best villains, and our favorite apocalypses. We more like rant, rave, and then have massive nerd rages. People call in from all over the world, sometimes minor celebrities, and we've even had some supervillains show up. Do you ever notice that you never have any superheroes or good guys? I'm a good guy. Compared to what? Antagonist. Not really a guest. Nutty Bites. Nimlast.org. And we're back. Again. Sorry that those synopses took so long. You would think that it would be easy to summarize three issues from 2014. But 
strangely enough, stuff happened in each and every one of these issues. It was weird, man. It was like reading a comic from the mid-80s. Let me make a few comments on each issue, and then sort of talk about the whole of these three, or really these five issues. On issue three, I like that this was a total change of pace from the first two issues, and of course, issue two, the speed dating issue, was a total change of pace from one. I like that Al Ewing isn't afraid to tell such different styles of stories here, but you know, obviously it's all connected, it's all one story, and, and we do see that coming together in, in four and five. I like the notion that in books that are quick-paced and easy to read, we've been given three totally different types of stories. And that at least takes a few minutes to sort of get your bearings from one issue to the next. And the time jumps also help because you have to slow down the reading process to make the stories fit. And I actually appreciate that. Now, I'm not bringing enough experience or knowledge of Thor and the rest of prior continuity to understand just where Sigurd fits into the big picture, but it was explained in the story. Now, I do wonder if I'm missing a bit of the depth that someone more familiar with the book in from the last decade or two would be catching. And I'm also not sure if we're relying on coincidence of Sigurd eventually finding the right inn, or if it's the only inn in the area, so it's just a matter of time before, I don't know, every Asgardian wanders in. In issue four, again, we start in a totally new locale, somewhere in Tibet this time. I loved this mystic. He was sarcastic and just seemed pretty modern. And I didn't see the reveal coming, but it is reasonable that Loki would eventually cross paths with Mephisto, the greatest dealmaker and the greatest trickster, deceiver versus deceiver. It is a crossing of the religions, which is always interesting. Again, I'm taking Mephisto as a representative of the Christian version of the devil, or the adversary, as Father Lantum pointed out on the Daredevil show. And in this one, Mephisto leaves the situation as the loser, but he is somewhat cheerful about it, as if he respects Loki a bit for being able to trick him. The fight on the clothesline and the dumpster was very good, and there was much funny banter, and it was just an enjoyable scene all the way around. And again, we see the incredible power that Verity has. Remember in issue one how Thor could sense his brother despite that invisibility charm? Here, Sigurd has multiple invisibility magic's active. And Loki is tricked. But he can't fool Verity. Verity cannot be lied to. She cannot be deceived. Again, what a great type of character to have in a book featuring Loki. You know, I I said that last episode, but I love this character. And then there's probably a callback to the speed dating scenario, as she is thoroughly unimpressed with Sigurd's attempts to hit on her. And I was surprised by the team that Loki assembled on the last page, especially intrigued by Thor's presence, as he seems pretty used to following whatever the All-Father or All-Mother has planned. He doesn't seem like a revolutionary. Lorelai fits, even Verity to some extent, I guess, but Thor? That was the surprise. And in issue 5, we get the heist issue. We have the team, 
and we have the three obstacles. And Ewing is not shy about pointing out the three obstacles. They are clearly and specifically identified, which was actually a pretty funny bit of writing. And, you know, this issue reminded me of the TV show Leverage or other heist-type shows where we constantly jump back to see what really happened at various parts of the story where we thought something else was happening. That's just, again, classic heist type of writing. The start of issue five is pretty funny, too, with Loki joking with a passenger from the wing of the plane. A little Twilight Zone, what was it, Terror 20,000 feet? I did not do a summary of the last page of this issue, as that's a tie-in to Original Sin and other major things happening in the Thorverse, so it wasn't important to what we were doing here. I did like, again, the definition of lying here, or the definition of deception, and how the sort of truth has no effect on old Loki, because his deceptions are sort of, in fact, truth, because of the whole timey-wimey aspects of the story. And old Loki very specifically addressed the wonkiness of this. I saw the effect and created the cause. I saw the story and wrote the origin. And of course, there is the aspect of fate that is addressed in this story arc. Loki's future is locked, at least as far as we know at this point. And nothing he can do in any timeline can change that. I appreciate when a comic book story has something to say, even if it's as basic as you can't fight fate. But Ewing spent all five of these issues, these last three in particular, putting that theme into fun, action-packed stories. And I keep coming back to fun. Certainly in the DC New 52, there was a distinct lack of fun. And to some extent, their new initiative has course-corrected that a bit. Bizarro, Starfire, Batmite, and others seem to be fun books from what I've read and what I hear. I don't know enough about the pre-Marvel Now stuff, I guess we call that the Marvel Then stuff, to know if it had also gotten dark and gritty and grimy and unfun, if this represents a change of pace, in, in other words, or if this represents what their other books were doing. My impression was that Marvel still had their fun elements, but either way, this was really fun. Again, repeating myself, how these got into quarter bins so fast after publication, it made no sense at the time, not knowing whether there were any good. But now, knowing that it was a pretty good story, I am totally befuddled by its presence in the cheap stacks. Appreciative, thank you Half Price Books, but befuddled. The verdict on Loki, Agent of Asgard, issues 3 and 4 and 5, a really satisfying end to a pretty solid arc, well worth 75 cents. You probably can't find them for that price. I can't believe I did. The first trade, titled Trust Me, is made up of these five issues that we've covered here in last episode, so I would recommend that if it shows up at your public library, or if you see it uh, on a good sale at your LCS or something. As I mentioned last episode, these issues have been covered on the mighty Thorcast, a show from Ed Moore's Teal Productions, available on the comic book noise feed. Issue 4 of this title was covered on episode 102, and then Ed realized that he had missed issue 3 and covered that on episode 104. I just like to think of it as he was adding to the time-jumping aspect of the story. You probably should have mentioned that during the episode, Ed. 
just just trying to help. And then issue 5 was covered back on schedule in episode 106. So for another view on these issues, for another take, I mean, if you want something more like informed, uh, knowledgeable about Thor and, and the other things going on in the books at the time, I mean, if that's what you're looking for in a podcast, I guess I would recommend listening to those episodes. That wraps up my coverage of Loki, Agent of Asgard, issues 3, 4, and 5, bringing episode 57 of the Quarterbin to a close, and boy, am I exhausted. Three issues? What was I thinking? In episode 58, we're jumping back in time and over to DC Comics, looking at the final issue, issue 16 of El Diablo, cover dated January 1991. Woo! Only one issue. Yes, an episode I can totally put it on cruise control for. Wait, did I just say that out loud? If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor! Professor.